Okay, let's, let's get right into the lesson today. We want to pick up where we left off last week. In talking about the fallen angels, uh, you know, we just finished an entire series on the faithful angels, what we often call the holy angels. They were the faithful angels. But a study like this obviously wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about the fallen angels as well. And we saw that ultimately demons are simply those faithful angels who did not remain faithful. And they left their proper domain, the Bible says, sin and became unclean evil spirits. Uh, Jude 6 is a verse of scripture that gives us uh, a little bit of insight into the origin of demons. So God did not originally create demons. A lot of people will ask the question, well, why did, uh, why did God create the devil? He didn't. He created Lucifer. Lucifer created the devil. Uh, Lucifer became the devil from his own uh, pride and sin. Uh, God did not create demons. All of the demons were at one time faithful angels, but they chose to follow Lucifer in his rebellion, so they created demons. Uh, Just like Adam and Eve were not created as sinners, they created Adam and Eve the sinners. They themselves did. So, the, the demons were not created uh, as demons. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about at the end of the lesson that I want to go back and revisit for just a second, a lot of folks try to figure out, well, you know, what are demons? They don't really understand biblically. And so some have always thought that they're the spirits of wicked people who have deceased. And the whole uh, ghost theory and the idea that there are ghosts and all that and people uh, feel like sometimes they've encountered ghosts, you know, apparitions, haunted houses... Now, they may be encountering something all right, but it's not the spirits of departed individuals. Demons are not the spirits of deceased people. In fact, the Bible is very clear that when a person dies, they go to a place to await judgment. There are two places. Um, one of them is a place of comfort. Uh, we call it heaven today. Before Jesus was resurrected, it was called paradise. But the Bible says in Hebrews nine twenty seven, it's appointed a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. So there, there is no ability for someone to be an apparition or a ghost. Uh, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us the amazing story of two men who died. It is not a parable. And he, he tells us about their, their condition once they reach their destinies awaiting judgment. Now, one of them, of course, was Lazarus, and he goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. Jesus called it paradise on the cross when he told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. That was the place where Old Testament believers went until their sins were paid for. Jesus pays for those sins on the cross. I don't believe that people go to paradise anymore. They go to heaven to be with the Lord. It's what Paul said, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Where's the Lord? Well, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But we have to understand this progression. That's a whole series of lessons in and of itself, uh, so I realize that. But the Bible is very, very clear that once a person dies, they go to a place to await judgment. And once they die, they are locked into their destiny. Uh, when the uh, known as the rich man in Luke 16 asks uh, Abraham, who he's conversing with, the Abraham of the Old Testament, uh, can I get some, uh, some comfort here? And he says, no. You are locked in your, your destiny. There's a great gulf that separates and you are fixed in your choice. So the idea that demons would be the spirits of deceased individuals is, is simply not biblical at all. And so it kind of puts to bed the whole ghost 
uh, deal altogether. Now, I do believe that demons masquerade around the world and will sometimes appear as deceased individuals to deceive. I'm convinced of that. And we may talk some more about that later in this series. But that is not what demons are. People are locked into their destiny. And all awaiting judgment will appear at one of two judgment seats. They'll either appear at the great white throne and be banished to the lake of fire. That's what Revelation chapter 20 says. Or the believers will appear at the judgment seat of Christ. I talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And of course that's not to determine whether or not they're going to heaven. But that judgment determines rewards uh, for believers who have lived faithfully. So uh, those awaiting judgment will be released from hell only to appear at the great white throne judgment and to be cast into the lake of fire. So there's no ground anywhere in scripture for disembodied spirits floating around and haunting people and showing up. But now I do believe that demons haunt people. I do believe that demons will often haunt places, possibly where very wicked things have happened and will deceive people into thinking that they are deceased uh, individuals, but I just do not believe that that is biblical. Number nine on the outline, demons likely number into the billions or trillions. The reason why we believe this is because the Bible uh, would lead us to believe that there are millions and millions of angels. In our first part of this series, when we talked about the faithful angels, uh, the scriptures tell us that they're innumerable. Now, not infinite, innumerable as far as we are concerned. But ultimately, God knows the number. We just wouldn't be able to count that high. Well, if one-third of them followed Lucifer and became demons, that's still a very large number. So I would assume that there are multiplied millions, probably into the billions or trillions of demons, even though they're only one-third of the original angel number. Oh, by the way, there's Revelation 12, 4 that, that tells us that uh, Satan drew a third of the stars of heaven uh, with him. That is, most theologians believe, a reference to the original rebellion uh, where a third of the angels sided with Lucifer. Number 10 on your outline, this was the previous outline, the the 2B outline. Like their master, demons steal, kill, destroy, enslave, hinder, and possess or oppress humans. Now, at the very end of this series, we're going to focus in on demonic possession and oppression because that's always a question that a lot of people have Uh, do demons still possess people can demons possess believers all these questions and so we'll deal with that in a freestanding lesson in this series but this is what they do and of course they do simply what their master lucifer who is now satan or the devil does And so referring to uh, Satan, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief, that would include his henchman, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so this is exactly what what the demons uh, are doing. Uh, Number 11 on your line, it appears that demons lost their spiritual bodies as part of their punishment when they followed Lucifer. Now this is... Again, another whole subject that I've actually taught a series on, a number of weeks, on what is a spiritual body. Many, many Christians, I believe, are woefully ignorant of eternity and the reason for the resurrection. And they get the idea that when Christians die, they become angels in heaven. When the Bible says 
that when all is said and done and we are glorified, we're going to be higher than angels and we'll actually be in positions of authority over angels. Now, right now, because of our sin, we're a little lower than the angels, but not when it's all said and done, not in Christ. So when we say, well, they're an angel in heaven, we're actually demoting that Christian. That's a demotion. Uh, Christians do not go to heaven and become angels. Angels were created originally in God's creative work, and there's a finite number of angels. People do not become angels. So that's an important thing. But the second thing that, that a lot of Christians don't get is that we're not going to be spirits forever in heaven. You know, the old Hollywood idea of of sitting on a cloud and strumming on a harp and eating Twinkies and drinking Dr. Pepper for eternity. That's, that's just not, that's not heaven. Uh, all the, the, the pictures that we have and Casper the ghost and the see-through business and all that, uh, that, that is not biblical at all. Most people are very shocked when they discover that the Bible says we will have spiritual bodies, B-O-D-I-E-S, bodies. This is the reason for the resurrection. If you're not going to have a glorified body, which is the third installment of salvation, remember, salvation is in three phases, justification, sanctification, and glorification. If God was not going to give you a glorified body in which to live, why would there be a resurrection? Why would Jesus, when he returns, bring the spirit soul of every individual that is with him back to be reunited with the body if there's not going to be a spiritual body in eternity? And so a lot of people say, well, it's still a spirit. No, it is not. It is a spiritual body. Now, again, this morning, this is not the whole lesson. One of these days, we'll, we'll do a series on this. But the Bible makes it incredibly clear that our glorified bodies will be just like Jesus' glorified body that he was seen in after the resurrection. A body that could be touched, a body that could be seen, a body that could eat. He eats with the disciples. A body that retained the scars of the cross. He tells Thomas, if you've got to see the scars, if you've got to touch the, the, the scar in my side, then, then here they are. This was a literal body, and yet that body could just appear out of thin air, the Bible says, with the doors and the windows locked. So what is a spiritual body? Well, it's a body. And it can respond to the laws of physics, but it's not limited by the laws of physics that we know. See, our bodies today are limited by the law of physics. A number of years ago, we were building the log house that we live in today. It's a second story, and I went off the top of it backwards. And I discovered very, very quickly that I cannot defy the law of gravity. The law of gravity caught up with me really fast. And so it's, it's a quick trip from the second floor to the ground backwards. It, it, it doesn't take very long. But my body cannot defy the laws of physics as we know them. But a spiritual body can. And yet is a, it, is, it is a body nonetheless. So all who live in God's kingdom in eternity possess spiritual bodies. You are not going to be a disembodied soul slash spirit for eternity. Now, those who have died right now, Christians who have died since Adam, are there in soul-spirit form. They do not have their glorified bodies as yet. But even that spirit soul has a form. 
And, and we, could, we could go deeper into that, but that's not our purpose today. But the Bible is very, very clear. Uh, when Paul is talking about the resurrection, and it, one of the ways that will help you, or at least it helps me to, to study Scripture, is to find certain anchor passages. So like, for instance, if you want to know something about the resurrection, well, there are many passages of Scripture on the resurrection, but my anchor is always 1 Corinthians 15, because that's a chapter where Paul dedicated that chapter to the resurrection. And then from 1 Corinthians 15, you can, you can search out all other scriptures, but that kind of becomes your home base of operations for the resurrection. If you want to uh, study spiritual gifts, uh, you either go to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and that becomes your home base, and you can work out from there studying about spiritual gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is specifically dealing with the resurrection and the nature of our spiritual bodies, he says, there is a natural body, that's what we have now, subject to the laws of nature as we know them, what we call physics. He says, but there's also a spiritual body. Now, what would a spiritual body be like? Well, it's only subject to the laws of the spirit. It can interact with the laws of physics. Jesus' resurrection body, as I said, could be touched, seen, and yet it could just appear out of thin air and could ascend into heaven and defy the law of gravity. But it was a body nonetheless. So it is only subject to the laws of God, the spiritual laws. So the Bible makes it very, very clear that there is such a thing as a spiritual body. All believers will receive a spiritual body at their resurrection. Back, back to 1 Corinthians 15, a few verses, 35, 42, and 44. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Which is an obvious question. When we bury somebody, we're always wondering, well, what, what's happened to them? Where is this believer? Uh, what, what state are they in now? Will they always be in that state? Will we see them again? Uh, will they receive a body? Why do we bury the body and do a, a ceremony um, on that spot? So also, he says is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a natural body. It is raised what? A spiritual body. This is why I always, at the cemetery, will tell people that a grave, at least for a believer, is not a place of sorrow. That's not a place of sadness. That's a miracle spot. I mean, I I don't know when and where miracles do or might occur, but I know where there's some miracles that are going to happen. We buried my dad many, many years ago in Van Buren. And his grave is a miracle spot. I can guarantee you a miracle is going to happen there someday. The Bible says that the dead in Christ will will rise first. If I could know when the rapture of the church is going to be, and I could get there, I could watch it happen. I know exactly where a miracle is going to happen. So I tell Christians that the grave is like the old pirate's treasure map. X marks the spot where the treasure is. X marks the spot where there's going to be a miracle. There's going to be a spiritual body, a glorified body, come out of the grave at every spot where a true born-again believer has been buried through the centuries. And those are miracle spots. Now, I know when we go to a a grave site and we, we, we stand there, we reminisce, and sometimes we get a little bit emotional because we think of the memories and we miss the person, and that's natural and that's fine. But always comfort yourself by knowing what this is first and foremost is a miracle spot. We have traced off an X on the ground, and there's going to be a miracle. So he says, it is raised a spiritual body. In Luke chapter 20, 
Starting at verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age, and he's talking here about the kingdom and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now when he says equal to the angels, he doesn't mean in position. He means in the fact that we have spiritual bodies. We're equal to them in that we have bodies. But remember, in our previous study of the faithful angels, they can manifest and appear as human beings. The book of Hebrews says, sometimes when you're entertaining a stranger, you may be entertaining an angel. You're just not aware of it. We know throughout Scripture that angels have manifested themselves and have been seen so physical And so natural looking that the homosexuals in Sodom wanted to rape the angels that came to to Lot's house. Remember? That's how masculine those angels were. So the, the angels have spiritual bodies and so will we. We will be the sons of God. We'll be the sons of the resurrection. Now there's much more that needs to be said on that. But in this lesson... Uh, probably not go too much further. But there's also an opposite truth, and that is not only will all believers get a spiritual body, I believe the Bible teaches that all unbelievers will get a spiritual body. All unbelievers will receive a spiritual body. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, listen to what Jesus says. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, notice all in the graves, will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Now remember, the Bible says none of us have done good. Ultimately, it's Christ's goodness substituted for our badness. So what he's talking about here is is born-again believers. And those who have done evil, that would be those who do not have the covering of Christ's blood, to the resurrection of condemnation. The King James, the old King James says, the resurrection of damnation. Now notice then, unbelievers will also get a spiritual body. They will get a spiritual body. And they will appear in that spiritual body at the great white throne judgment. And will be cast into the lake of fire in that spiritual body. B-O-D-Y. It's very important. Now, the reason why I think understanding this is so important is because most Christians know little if nothing about heaven other than it's going to be good. They know little or nothing about the way in which they will spend eternity in their spiritual body. And because of these things, and because of what Hollywood has done to us, we've allowed it to happen. Uh, because we think that people die and become angels and all this, and the, you know, floating on clouds, strumming harps, eating Twinkies, and all that kind of stuff, we, we, we don't really look too much forward to heaven. I mean, we certainly look forward to it as the alternative to hell. I mean, you know, none of us want to go to hell, but heaven would not be a place that we would choose based upon typically what we know about it. And I think that has done great damage to Christians because we don't really understand what's ahead of us and what awaits us. Now, the apostles did, and this is why they write in their epistles that eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't even entered the hearts of men, the things that God has in store for those who love him. Over and over, those who had been, a, been privileged to see into eternity said, you can't believe what is coming for the believer. Now, notice how that would shift 
the way we look at things like life, death, and eternity. See, if we really believed that heaven was way better than here, I know we say it is, but we really don't honestly sometimes believe that. We certainly will choose it for the alternative. We don't want to go to the lake of fire. But we kind of almost think this life is better. And those who have seen beyond this life tell you by their own testimony that is better, far better. And see, if Christians really got that, I think we wouldn't cling so tightly to this life. I don't think that we would suffer so much with death. Death is always going to be a problem for us because it's a foreign entity that God didn't create us to deal with because we weren't supposed to face it. Death is the product of sin. That was not a part of God's original creation, so He didn't give us the ability to deal with it because we weren't supposed to face it. This is why when someone dies, we'll say we don't have the words. Sure, we don't have the words. Because we weren't supposed to ever have to face that. So God didn't give us the words. But He has given us His Word, and if we really understand it, we actually can deal with death. In fact, I'm convinced that until a person can deal with death, they can't really handle life. You live your whole life worried about it coming to an end. But if you understand what God's Word says about eternity for the believer, this life's important, but it's not nearly as important as we often make it. And I think all of this is based upon our ignorance of heaven and our ignorance of the spiritual body that we will receive. We, we, we think it's going to be some kind of foreign thing where we're going to be a ghost forever and all that. None of that's true. And the Bible is actually, oddly, very specific about what eternity will be like. It's just that there's not book, chapter, and verse, typically. And so we haven't done the, the homework to understand what Scripture teaches. And so we probably need a whole series on heaven because most of us probably will be surprised if we don't know what the Bible really says heaven's going to be like. So all unbelievers will receive a spiritual body. So that then leads us back to the unfaithful angels or what we call demons. At one time, they had a spiritual body because the other angels do. So why wouldn't the demons have a spiritual body? Well, at least they did have until they became demons. And it appears that part of God's judgment on them when they followed Lucifer is that they lost their spiritual body. So they are like unclothed. They are incomplete. This may explain why they are constantly driven or at least appear to be driven to possess someone. Part of it is the evil motive to control that person, but part of it could be that they feel so incomplete that they would actually accept the body of a pig rather than no body at all. Now, we'll look at that in just a second. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to listen to what Scripture says. And I am, boy, I'm, I'm digging a deep hole here, and we've not even gotten to the new outline. So I apologize. But in 2 Corinthians 5, look at what Paul says. He says, for we, now that means we Christians right now, groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. In other words, we know that we're not complete. See, I'm saved, but I'm not completely saved yet. 
I'm justified. That's justified, never sinned. I have the righteousness of Christ. When God sees me, he sees me through the sacrifice of his son, and I'm therefore perfect. That's the only way I could ever be perfect. But I'm also sanctified. Now, sanctification is a process that involves our will. Some of us are more sanctified than others. It's not because we're better. We're just more committed to it. Some of us are less sanctified. Well, it doesn't mean that we're not as good as the others. We're just less committed. Sanctification is the process by which the Lord takes our lives here and makes them more like His. Well, we're all at different levels in that sanctification process. But there's a third phase or level of salvation. I've already mentioned it. It's glorification. It's when everything's said and done. My body cannot die ever again. It cannot be injured ever again. It will not sorrow. It will not hurt. But my body right now can be injured. It does hurt. I do feel sorrow. And I know that that's not right. That's not the way God intended it. Well, how did God intend it? We go all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This is why Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, are so critical to understanding everything else in Scripture. Because Adam was living in a body that couldn't die. He was going to live forever in that body until he sinned. And at that moment, he became incomplete. This is why you and I always know that there ought to be more. There ought to be more. This is not quite right, is it? Well, this is what Paul is saying here. We all are looking forward to receiving that spiritual body. Glorification is what he's saying here. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, those who are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ stand naked before God. For we who are in this tent groan, he says, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. Notice he says, further clothed. See, he's saying, even even me, I'm not complete yet. And he won't be, by the way, until the resurrection. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, Paul is with the Lord in soul, spirit, presence. But he doesn't have his glorified body yet. He'll get his glorified body when I get mine. He's still unclothed in that respect. Now, think about the demons. If they did lose their spiritual body... Can you imagine how uncomfortable they feel? How incomplete they feel? That's why whenever Jesus talked about an unclean spirit, a demon being in a man who is possessed, he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he doesn't say why. I would assume that this man has done something to reform himself. He goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none He says, meaning the demon says to himself, I will return to my house from which I came. Notice how Jesus explains this. This demon is out there and feels like he doesn't have a home. He doesn't have completeness. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. So this man has done some house cleaning in his life. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. That tells us then that there are levels of demons. 
Some demons are more wicked than others. From Jesus' very words here, seven demons more wicked than he is. And he's wicked, but he's got some demons that he knows that are worse than him. So he goes and gets them, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, what this is all about, really, is the futility of religion. The futility of human beings trying to reach up to God. See, that's what religion is. Religion is man trying to reach up to God. Redemption is God reaching down to man. And there's the difference. And sadly, most people who are spiritually minded have religion. They don't have redemption. And there are hundreds and thousands of people sitting in Baptist churches today who I fear have a good dose of religion but no redemption. Billy Graham used to say it like this. Some people have been vaccinated for the gospel. They got just enough of it that they can't ever catch the real thing. Just enough of it that they can't ever catch the real thing. They're religious. That's the deal that Jesus is talking about here. And he includes the demons and how this man is powerless when these seven other demons jump on him because he doesn't have any covering. This, this man who has somehow cleaned up his house. And then if you go to Matthew 28, you have the story of Jesus casting the demons out of this man in the Gadarene countryside who lived out in the, the tomb, uh, the, 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 uh, among the tombstones in the cemetery. And when the demons realized that Jesus is about to cast them out of this man, and remember, there were many. Uh, the demon called himself Legion. So the demons begged him, meaning begging Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Now, why would demons want to possess pigs, hogs? It leads me to believe that there may be some credence to the idea that part of their judgment is that they are disembodied spirits without their spiritual bodies. And this is why it appears that they so desire to possess. And this is why possession is just as real today as it was in the days of the New Testament, in the days of Jesus. Because they don't have a body. And they feel unclothed. And Paul even talked about how awkward we Christians feel unclothed from our glorified bodies. Think of how much more awkward these previously faithful angels who are now fallen angels feel if they indeed did lose their spiritual body as a part of their punishment. This is why they seek to possess individuals and prefer hogs over nothing. Because that would kind of have to be the comparison, wouldn't it? I got hog or nothing, I'll take the hog, right? So that's who these demons are. Now let's jump to our new outline. Let's at least kind of get started in the new outline. This always takes longer than what I plan. Thanks. You never know how encouraging you are to me. (laughs) Let's talk about their personality and their perversion. Now, some of this obviously overlaps. As you move through a study like this, we've mentioned things before. We'll just try to kind of highlight it a little bit more as we move along. Okay, so let's begin with this statement. Demons... 
fallen angels were once faithful angels. Therefore, they possess many similarities to the faithful angels. I mean, that just goes almost without being said. But in a, in a lesson like this, I think we need at least make the statement. So when you study the faithful angels, you already know a lot about the fallen angels. Because the fallen angels were at one time faithful angels. So there's going to be great similarities. And one of the similarities, if you remember, we spent a good deal of time a few weeks ago talking about the fact that the faithful angels have personalities. They're not just robotic spirits just being sent out to do what God wants done, and they do it with no emotion, no intellect, no will. Not at all. The Bible teaches the exact opposite, that angels have personalities, meaning that every angel is unique. And that when we get to know angels someday in eternity, we're going to find out that one is different from the other. And just think of it, you're going to have all eternity, you'll get to know every one of them on a first name basis, and you will know his personality. To me, that's just incredibly intriguing to think about. It kind of blows fuses in my brain when I start trying to figure it out, but it's just amazing to think that way. You're going to know every saint who's ever lived, You will know Moses personally, by name, intimately. You will know Noah. Just name them. It matters not. If Rush truly did give his life to Christ the last two years of his life, and there's great evidence that he did, a lot of people who knew him that are Christians said that Rush became a Christian about two years ago. Uh, Not many weeks ago, he actually gave his testimony on air. He didn't spend a ton of time, but if you heard it, Uh, It's very, very strange for a guy like him who's very private. So if he truly was born again, and I suspect that he was, then you'll know Rush Limbaugh. I mean, that's a big deal, you know, but you're going to know Rush Limbaugh. Okay, so like faithful angels, demons have a personality. Obviously they would because they had a personality whenever they were uh, faithful angels. So let's see why this will not uh, advance. Here we go. Now, how do we prove this? Well, here, right here at the end of this class, let's at least jump on this one. The Bible uses personal pronouns for them. For instance, if you go to Luke chapter 8 and you read a different passage about this man in the country of the Gadarenes, remember this is the guy that lived out in the cemetery and they tried to bind him and it didn't matter what they put on him, whether it was chains or ropes, it didn't matter. He would break the bindings. And, and everybody was deathly afraid of him because he would howl and all out in the cemetery. Can you imagine living near that cemetery and this guy out there at night? It would have been terrifying. See, we typically don't think about that. We just read this and go on. Well, what if your house was next door to the cemetery? Not any cemetery, that one. And you could hear that guy out there at night thrashing around. Why do you think they bound him? Because they were afraid of him. He was a local monster. How would you like to have a resident monster living right down the street from your house? They were terrified of this guy. And he would yell and groan and moan out there at night. And they'd chain him up. And he'd break the chains. They'd rope him down. He'd break the ropes. And then Jesus encounters him. Now, you kind of know the story. Uh, he, He was naked, nor did he live in a house. But in the tombs, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him. And with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. Now, 
These are the demons inside this man speaking. Because Jesus is going to address these demons. And they're going to tell Jesus that at least the head one indwelling this man's body was named Legion. But notice this, this demon. He has personality. Here he recognizes who Jesus is. He begs that Jesus not cast him out. He begs him not to torment him because he knows his future. Well, you can't do that if you don't have personality. It, it, that, that just cries of personality. Now, we've already proven that the faithful angels have personality. Well, then that would apply to the fallen angels as well. And then one last, and we'll stop right here. They have names. In the passage that we were just looking at, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus asked this man, but Jesus knows he's not speaking to this man. He's speaking to the demons in this man. Obviously, one of the demons was in charge of the other demons. And they're indwelling the body of this man. And so Jesus says, what is your name? Now, would have Jesus said that if demons don't have names? That's silly. He had created these demons, but he didn't create them as demons. You see, he knew every one of these demons. He knew who they were. And he knew that at one time, they were faithful angels. Don't you know it had to break the heart of the Lord to know which faithful angel he was speaking to that was now a fallen angel? So, what does the demon say? Legion. Because he had many demons in him. And then Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. And we'll stop right here. The demons in the bottomless pit, we'll come back to that next week, the demons in the bottomless pit that are locked up right now because they are so wicked, God had to incarcerate them. Notice they have a king over them, and his name in the Hebrew, depending on how you want to pronounce it, is Abaddon or Abaddon, but in Hebrew, he has a name, Apollyon. They're named just like the faithful angels. The demons all have names. Let's stop right there. We'll pick up there next week, all right? Hang on to that outline. We'll use it next week. You're dismissed.